Today's episode is presented by IBM. IBM's Watson X Governance helps organizations manage their AI responsibly at enterprise scale and prepare for AI regulations coming worldwide. Learn more at ibm.com governance. One of the political big beasts at Davos this week is David Cameron, the UK's Foreign Secretary. And as a former Prime Minister, he's no stranger to the annual jamboree in the Swiss Alps. Seven and a half years before the now ennobled Lord Cameron departed the world stage in the wake of the Brexit vote for a quieter life, he's back. And in just over two short months, he's contended with two wars raging in Europe and the Middle East and a new crisis in the Red Sea, threatening to drag the US and its allies, Britain foremost among them, into a wider regional conflict. I think the argument you sometimes get that there's nothing you can do, that all action ends in failure, I don't think that's the right answer. Welcome to Powerplay. Politico's transatlantic podcast, where we talk to some of the world's most influential people on either side of the Atlantic. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're coming to you from the World Economic Forum. I'm with the Foreign Secretary in an apartment looking out over those magisterial mountains. Not too shabby. Welcome to the show, David Cameron. Great to be with you. Back at Davos, but this time as... Foreign Secretary, eventful couple of months. He seemed to have done nothing but firefight, really, whether it's the wars raging in Ukraine, Gaza, political crisis. At home, your mood? Well, it is an unbelievably difficult, dangerous and insecure time for the world, which makes this job, I suppose, more important. Um, And it's uh, an honour to come back and serve. And I like working with Rishi Sunak. He's a prime minister who knows what he wants. He knows what he wants to do. He's a man with a plan. And that plan includes the importance of trying to build security for Britain at home and security and prosperity by the work we do overseas. So my mood is upbeat because I'm an upbeat person, but it is a very difficult, dangerous world. And what is it like coming into a role that's clearly at the top end of Cabinet? It's Foreign Secretary at an incredibly important and, and fraught time in the world but you know you were prime minister how is it to actually have to take a lead from someone else you think think you'd like to be in charge again (laughs) no I I certainly don't Um, I joke about it I say that you know being prime minister for six years was a good apprenticeship for being foreign minister because um, you know you you do a lot of diplomacy as prime minister but then when it suddenly becomes your your whole raison d'etre it's it's good to have that experience no as I say it's easy to work for this Prime Minister because he knows what he wants. Meetings are chaired brilliantly, he's read everything, he's all over everything. Decisions are made quickly and actually uh, I quite like being part of a team. So it's, I, I think, I hope I've slipped back in uh, relatively easily. There were a few things that were a bit rusty. Um, like what? I even got lost um, trying to find my office in the House of Lords because I didn't know my way around. But otherwise, other than that, no, I, I hope I've uh, tried to start quickly by getting to Ukraine straight away, doing a visit to Israel and the region straight away. I've been back to the region again, trying to get across some of these issues about getting aid into Gaza. And obviously, it, it's not just conflict in Europe and the Middle East that we see. There are more conflicts in Africa taking place at the moment than there have been for decades. We've got a more assertive and aggressive China, including in the Pacific. So, Everywhere you look, actually, there are issues and problems and difficulties. And it sort of emphasises to me that the really the Ukraine invasion was the most important moment. It was a moment when 
we needed to recognize the world changed. That means a greater priority for defense, a greater priority for security, uh, a greater investment in our intelligence and security services, a greater belief in, in bringing development and diplomacy together to help. So I think on all of those fronts, actually, the government is acting and acting in a way that prioritizes um, the vital conservative value of security. I'll come on to some of those in a bit more detail in a, in a moment. One thing I was curious about is you had some time to reflect after 2016, after the Brexit vote, and you stopped being Prime Minister. You found other things to do. I often came across you. were very, very busy. I think you were about to dabble in podcasting. Probably you can't do that when you're Foreign Secretary other than on this show. I was about to do a podcast on the search for a cure for Alzheimer's. Um, I'd even mapped out the various parts of the podcast that we were going to do. So now I've had to drop all that. I've only got one job, which is being Foreign Secretary. And there is, I mean, I suppose the good thing about having been out of office for a while is, as I say, when you're Prime Minister, you've got no time to think. And when you stop being Prime Minister, you've got too much time to think. But hopefully you reflect a bit on how to do these jobs, how to find time to think, how to try to make sure you're being strategic as well as tactical, try and think about the important relationships that you have around the world. So on that basis, I, I feel like, as I say, I had a good apprenticeship for being... But being I mean, in that period of... How is the David Cameron of now different to the David Cameron when you were Prime Minister? What did that period of reflection bring you? I think um, it certainly makes you think a lot about making decisions, about trying to find the time to think through decisions. It's still very, very difficult. I think that's important. I think it makes you, you look back at uh, how you worked with colleagues, how you ran a team, how to be part of a team, how to make a team work. I think those you are do good that things. It's often, now? well, I mean, I'm now part of a team rather than the leader of the team, but I suppose I do lead a very big team, which is the 17,000 diplomats and uh, intelligence services and development workers and others that we have. Some but people- hopefully I've learned some lessons about how to try and you know, uh, communicate with your team. I mean, I've already, I've only been Foreign Secretary for, for a month and a bit, and we've already had two large town halls with everybody dialing in and listening and lots of questions. I think th- those sorts of things, look, I mean, people develop as a leader, and hopefully they learn as they go along, and I hope I'm not an exception. I'm sticking my neck out here, but it was actually an American listener said, oh, I remember that David Cameron, he was very smooth, kind of smoothy chops, smooth, accomplished. You get a sensitive, sometimes you, you see that sometimes in the kind of teasing of you, you or the can't, way people write about You can't sort of, um, you know, uh, determine how people see you. I remember once bumping into Steve Bell in a car park, the Guardian cartoonist, and saying, why do you always portray me, you know, with this sort of condom over my head? What is it I've done to um, deserve this? And he roared with laughter and said, oh, you're just too smooth. And that's the only way I could put it. Strange way of putting it, but there we are. You have to take the rough with the smooth in, in this job. Um, but it's a conversation I remember. But look, I, I think the most important thing in this job is try to have a clarity of argument, a clarity of thinking. I find one of the problems in in politics, and this particularly applies with diplomacy, is there's so many preconceived ideas and prejudices and positions that people have that are based on emotional reactions rather than thinking through what's the right thing for Britain, what's the right position to get in. How do we try? I think the biggest thing in being foreign secretary is trying not to just be foreign secretary, but to try and think, well, what are we going to do? My predecessor, who was a in the House of Lords and Foreign Secretary Lord Carrington, always used to end every meeting by saying, and so, i.e., and so what follows? 
we've got to try and make sure that we don't just analyse, we, we act in a way that furthers our interests. I'm going to take that challenge and say, so what follows from where we are with the Rwanda policy, just very briefly, for those who don't follow the ins and outs of, of this controversial uh, policy, to resolve the small boats problem of, of those claiming asylum in, in the UK by irregular means and the attempts well, to have them uh, sent back to Rwanda. Now, this scheme, as we know, has uh, has been dragging its way through the commons and, and has a lot of fire and fury around it. Now we hear Rwanda's president, Paul Kagame, effectively telling the UK to sort it out or forget it. He says the scheme is dragging on. It's the UK's problem, and he would send taxpayers' money back in Britain, if it doesn't get off the ground, well, doesn't sound great. But we are sorting it out because we've got the Rwanda bill going through Parliament. We've got the treaty that we've signed with Rwanda, which is crucial because that will guarantee that no one who uh, receives asylum is sent back to the country from which they came. No refoulement, to use the uh, correct uh, term. And then, of course, we've got the evidence pack we produced about the true nature of Rwanda, which is a safe country, which actually at the moment has over 100,000 refugees there, including whole schools that relocated from Afghanistan and from Sudan. So, look, but. Take a step back. Why is this necessary? I think, if you like, there are two sorts of politicians when it comes to this issue of illegal migration. There are those that will turn up on a podcast like this and say, we're going to speed up the processing. Vitally important, and we do that. They say, we're going to get to grips with the criminal gangs. Very important, and we're doing that. But they don't go to the heart of the problem, which is, what are you going to do to stop people getting in a boat from safe country A, France, and going to safe country B, Britain. What are you going to do to stop that? And unless you can send people directly back or directly to somewhere else, you're never going to stop it. But and nonetheless, uh, the Rwanda policy, I, I only yeah. break in because I know you have made this argument and you have given it a clear framing and yeah. you, you've done so in this this week already. So the way I wanted to take it on with you is by saying, well, you've described this solution as unorthodox, out of the box thinking that seems to suggest that you think it's imaginative, but it doesn't entirely sound like your heart would be in it if you could start uh, from scratch. No, no, would my, you ever have done it as Prime Minister no, yourself? Yeah, my heart is absolutely in it, because, of course, look, the, the most obvious thing to do would be to take the people as they arrive in a boat from France and take them straight back to France. In fact, actually, I have experience of this when I was Prime Minister. One of the things that did work when there was that great flurry of people coming from Turkey to Greece and the EU managed to negotiate an agreement with Turkey. And the agreement was that everyone who arrived in a boat from Turkey to Greece would go straight back again. And in reply, the EU would, would take some people from t- camps in Turkey. That was a very successful policy. That route was once you take away the business model of the people smugglers, the numbers collapse. So, so of course, the most logical thing would be to send people straight back to France. But we don't, we can't get that agreement with the French. We can't get that agreement with the EU. So we have to do unorthodox, out-of-the-box thinking. Does that make you wonder if the French are ever going to really forgive Britain for Brexit? And that, that must be a personal, a bit of a personal moment I, for you. I don't think it is. I think One of the things I would say for all the... The areas I've come back to work on, whether it's the tilt of the Indo-Pacific, whether it is Middle East, whether it's Ukraine, actually the relationship with the EU and with the major EU countries is in a much better place now than it has been for years. I think a lot of the anger and disappointment on both sides has drained away. 
and there's a quite a rational relationship, whereas I put it, Britain is the friend, neighbour and partner, but not member, and we're making the relationship work. And I would say I've had an excellent meeting with President Macron a week or so ago, uh, very good meetings I've had in Italy. You can see I'm writing joint articles with the German Foreign Minister about Gaza. I mean, I think the relationship is in a much better place. Um, What's a relationship like for you? How do you feel really about the state of the Conservative Party? We've seen a devastating polls and quite polls at quite a scale, which predicting defeats could be historic for the Conservative Party. I'm sure you feel hmm. as well as wanting to play a role on the international stage. And no one can, I think, mistake the fact in your voice that there's real commitment there. But they have you come really to try and dig your party out of a very deep ditch? I've come back to help. I mean, I said uh, to the Conservative MPs when I came back, don't think I'm just coming back because it's an interesting time to be Foreign Secretary. I'm all in. I want to help with every... I, I care deeply about this party. I care about this country. I'm a huge supporter of this Prime Minister. I, I want to see us re-elected. And you know, I remember in 2013-14 having some pretty bad poll deficits myself and coming back from that and winning the 2015 election. You so, didn't have any this bad. Well, nothing is... Nothing is written about what will happen. I think a lot of people are out there, are undecided, are thinking about it. It's been an incredibly difficult time for the country. You've had, I mean, COVID was harder to deal with than anything I had to deal with as Prime Minister. The invasion of Ukraine sent food prices, fuel prices rocketing. It's had a huge impact on our economy and our politics. So I think, you know, but we're recovering from that. And I think that Rishi Sunak's got a very strong offer, which is to say, look, here's a Prime Minister with a strong team, with a plan, and that plan's working. I do and, want and to stick to the plan. Sorry. Don't go back to square one. Uh, I do want to move us off the, the UK yeah. towards the Middle East now, but I, I must just ask you, if those first flights of asylum seekers to Rwanda don't happen before the election, do you think that would be seen as a failure and an well, embarrassment? I, for I hope Sunak? they will take place, because I think we've got the third reading of the bill. I hope that's going to go through. It then comes to the House of Lords. You know, I don't think the House of Lords should... I'm sure it have lots of questions, but I don't think it should hold it up. Uh, and as I say, it's out of the box, it's unorthodox, but it is necessary to make sure that arriving in a boat doesn't involve staying. We're going to pause there for a short break. Do stay with us. We'll be back with more of our conversation with David Cameron and some of the questions that you, our listeners, have sent to me to ask him. A message from IBM. AI has the power to automate, but if it's using untrusted data, can you trust the results? Your business doesn't just need AI, it needs the right trusted AI for your business. Introducing Watson X, a platform designed to multiply output by tailoring AI to your needs. When you Watson X your business, you can train, tune, and deploy AI, all with your trusted data. Let's create trusted AI for business with Watson X. Learn more at ibm.com slash watsonx. IBM. Let's create. Let's turn to Israel and, and Gaza. And uh, I think you've found it Davos this week. You know, there's a bit of a, a tension there, isn't there, mm. for, for leaders and uh, for secretaries and everyone involved about how much attention to give to that and then the Ukraine crisis at the same time a bit of resentment I think perhaps from some of the Ukraine people around here this week that they're being a bit forgotten I, I, think, think? Look, I think it's of course you know to me Ukraine is the absolute number one priority this is the challenge for our generation this is like you know being a, a foreign minister or a leader in Europe in in the 1930s you know we have got to 
not appease Putin. We have got to stand up to the evil that his invasion represents. And actually, arriving in Davos today, you know, when you look at what's happening around the world, the French have said they're going to send long-range missiles to Ukraine. The Germans have announced a substantial package. Von der Leyen herself has said that the EU is going to find a way through to provide this money. I'm confident that the US will do the same thing. Rishi Sunak's just got back from a very successful visit to Ukraine, where Britain pledged $2.5 billion for next year, an increase on what we've been doing. So in fact, I think, you know, there's a lot of attention on Ukraine, a lot of unity and a lot of purpose. And we just need to, as I put it, Make that pay. But that pledge uh, for money through Congress, convoluted, but as you, you seem to think that that will happen in the US. But it is obviously very difficult and possibly fraught if Donald Trump returns to the White House. He's had this extraordinary result, as you would have followed in the Iowa caucuses this week. Do you look at this map and say, well, we'll come on to the other uh, territories very quickly yeah. that you're you know, in front of mind for you. Do you have this feeling that in a way, the great Shrek of the international system, Donald Trump could be on his way back? Well, and how would you feel? We're not in control of what happens in America and Britain will, will work with whatever the Americans decide. But I think one thing we can do if we get the money out of Congress the money through the EU, our own approach, and you see this incredible unity of purpose amongst the Ukrainians, is demonstrate during the course of this year that Putin isn't winning, and he isn't. He's lost 300,000 people. He's lost a fifth of his Black Sea fleet. He's added two very important, powerful and well-trained members yeah, to NATO. Because, largely so, because NATO is fully involved, and Donald Trump said a couple yeah, of years that, ago here in Davos he doesn't believe in NATO. If you show during the course of this year a level of commitment and success, and you continue to demonstrate the vulnerability of Putin's Russia, I think then whoever takes over the presidency at the end of this year will will have a, be able to have a, a look at the situation as it is, not as the narrative perhaps is going at the moment. You've called for an immediate pause to let humanitarian aid enter Gaza and for hostages to be released. But is that enough at a time when we have now just at 1.9 million, I think, displaced residents, widespread hunger, and deprivation. And the former Foreign Secretary, Lord Owen, who you know well and was obviously involved in Bosnia and in other conflicts, said this week it was time for a UN protection force to enter Gaza and ensure that humanitarian aid gets through, as happened in the Bosnian war in the early 90s. Is he right? I think the practicalities of that are extremely difficult. I think, though, what I've said could be shown to be a way to actually bring this conflict to an end. If you start with a humanitarian pause so you can get aid in and you get the hostages out, the key question then is can you turn that pause into the sustained ceasefire we all want to see? And I think if you could, I mean, the conditions would be clearly the Hamas leadership would have to leave Gaza that you'd have to see uh, guarantees that the rocket attacks, the terrorist attacks that have been possible in the past aren't possible in the future. And you'd have to see, of course, a sort of revitalized Palestinian authority, bolstered by other expertise, being able to go into Gaza and provide the governance and the services that are required. But so, And then you've got to have all the elements of a long-term peace plan, including a sort of horizon towards a two-state solution. But I think it is possible to go from pause to ceasefire to settlement. A number of conditions would have to be fulfilled, but I I hope that's where 
Arab states and the Americans and others and the Israelis, crucially, will focus because no one wants this conflict to go on for a moment longer than is necessary. I guess what I often hear back, and particularly when we have uh, Israeli guests on this podcast, as we have had those dreadful Hamas attacks of October the 7th, is that the UK government, perhaps the government in Washington and others, do not feel the horror and the empathy for the people of Gaza that they felt for the people of Israel after October the 7th. And that there's, a, if you like, a kind of emotional skew in a lot of leading governments in the West and the way they look at the crisis. Do you understand I, at I, least that response? Obviously, I hear that, but I, I don't share it. I mean, I have been to Kibbutzberry in the south of Israel and seen you know, the results of what happened on October the 7th and the true horror of it. But I've also, you know, sat in our embassy in Cairo and listened to British staff, many of them Gazans as well, coming out of Gaza and what they've seen, what they've experienced and the loved ones they've lost and the the, the family members they've seen killed. And I've heard their stories too. So I, I do, you know, a life is a life. I feel deeply about this, but I'm a very practical person and I, I want to know... How do we bring this to an end? I know some people are sort of frustrated with Britain because we didn't just say immediate comprehensive ceasefire and then talk. Uh, I think that just wouldn't have worked because if you want a two-state solution, if you want a sustainable ceasefire, you can't ask the Israelis to have a two-state solution with the people who perpetrated October the 7th in command in Gaza still able to launch rockets into their country. It's simply not practical. It's not possible. And so that's where we've tried to focus at some sort of cost, as it were, from other, from what people might think of us. We've tried to concentrate on what would actually work, what would make a difference. And that's why I've been so focused on the aid situation, where I've probably been tougher on Israelis over that than many of my other counterparts across Europe and the wider world. I've had endless calls and endless sessions of saying they've got to open more crossings, they've got to allow more UN staff in, they've got to allow them to move aid round Gaza, they've got to open Port Ashdod in Israel to get maritime deliveries of aid in. I'm, I follow it daily how many trucks are getting in. Right now it's about 150 a day, it's not enough. We've got to get it up to 500 trucks or we're going to have serious levels of disease and starvation. And does that spark uh, frustration with you about the aspects of the leadership in Israel? And Mr Netanyahu, there's certainly seems to be some friction there that it's felt by the Biden administration that that he does not readily listen to advice from allies. Do you share that feeling? Well, I'll try and keep my frustrations to myself as I'm now learning um, about the importance of diplomacy. But of course, look, I understand what they're going through. For Israelis, this was a deeply traumatic event. And I understand why they feel they cannot live next to a Hamas-run terrorist state that does this these things to them. But on the other hand, at the same time, it is an aim of the Israelis, quite rightly, to get the hostages out. I met two hostage families yesterday, and I think the best way to get hostages out is to have that pause. So I hope we can get on with this from now. We must talk about the, the Houthi and the Yemen-backed uh, rebels in the, in the Red Sea and uh, those airstrikes in which the UK is playing a prominent role or has played a prominent role alongside the US. Look, the question a lot of voters might be asking themselves and actually listeners beyond uh, in the transatlantic prism and across 
uh, Europe is, oh, the UK is like right up there. Like, why are we in there so early? Sometimes when we've lent into these conflicts for good reasons early on, you know yourself because you, you had a very, very difficult time dealing uh, with the situation in Libya, but also Iraq, also Afghanistan, that we kind of, well, to take a, a devil's metaphor, we get in a bit of our skis. Are you worried about that? No, I, I would make two points. I mean, the first is that with this situation, we've had 26 attacks on ships since November the 19th. Freedom of navigation is vitally important. And military action really has been very much a last resort. We've had warning after warning, including calls from myself to the Iranian foreign minister, work in the UN Security Council and all the rest of it. So very much a last resort. But I think it is important, ultimately, to show you are prepared to follow up words with, with action. So you wouldn't rule out further airstrikes? Well, I, what I would say is we'd always bear in mind, when you make warnings, you have to be prepared to take action. But I would challenge one of the things you said, which is actually, mm. of course... You know, any intervention like this is always difficult. You should always ask what the alternatives are. You should always ask what else you can do. But, you know, I would say, if you look at what, just shortly before I left office, what we did to get ISIL out of Iraq and Syria, that was successful. That was necessary. ISIL no longer has a state. It no longer has oil revenues. It no longer has all the things that were there to threaten us. And I think the argument you sometimes get that there's nothing you can do, that all action ends in failure... I don't think that's the right answer. I think you've just had meetings with uh, an Iranian uh, delegation. A question from the audience, actually, and many others, I'm sure. Iran is of critical importance, the establishment of peace and security in the Middle East and constructive engagement with the West. Does the Foreign Secretary have a policy of engagement working through allies such as Turkey? And how is he implementing it? We have a policy of being very clear-eyed about the threats that Iran poses in the region. Uh, not least through its proxies of Hamas and Hezbollah and the Houthis and indeed the armed groups that they uh, support in Iraq and, and elsewhere. But we do believe that messaging very clearly is important. We've used a number of sanctions against the Iranian regime and against the IGRC. But the fact we have diplomatic relations means that I can deliver messages directly as I've been doing, rather than ask one of my colleagues in France or Germany or elsewhere to do it. And part of the job of the Foreign Secretary is to talk to people that we profoundly disagree with, to deliver often some very uncomfortable and difficult messages, but to keep that level of dialogue open. And that's something I'm committed to do. Rolling towards last thought now, I remember interviewing you many years ago when you talked about decontaminating the Tory brand. What state do you think the Tory brand is in these days? Oh, I think one of the things that's so interesting coming back in after a few years and meeting a lot of Conservative MPs, some of whom I really didn't know at all because they got elected in 2017 or 2019, is first of all, the diversity of the Conservative Party is not only... Um, it is enhanced massively from when I was in charge. We did a lot to bring in more women MPs, to bring in people from different minority ethnic backgrounds. But now the Conservative Party is a far better reflection of the country it aspires to govern in terms of North and South and rich and poor and privately educated and public. You know, there's a real diversity of MPs. And I say one other thing, which is one of the things I'm most proud of, which is the legislation for equal marriage. Um, that is now proudly accepted by almost every Conservative MP. Indeed, uh, even Nigel Farage said he didn't want to reverse it. So there we are. If that isn't modernisation, I don't know what is. That's a Victoria game. We ask everyone on the show to close who they'd like to listen to on this podcast. Who are you going to choose? Oh, 
gosh, um, I'm not really much... Going I, through the will, What the I mill do again. a bit with... I, I'm a bit of an audible guy, because when I, by the time I get to the end of the day, I, I need a bit of relaxation and a bit of escapism. That's the wrong answer. I, I know that's the wrong answer. Um, I would do you listen be, to George Osborne's podcast? I, I have, because uh, he told me to, so I did listen to one of his. I think I want more podcasts about what's happening in New Hampshire and what's going to happen in South Carolina. and what's, I mean... Like all politicians, you can't help but be drawn into this extraordinary process that takes place in this massive democracy and trying to understand what's going to happen next. I think we can serve you well there. Foreign Secretary David Cameron, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you. Tomorrow, we'll be rounding out the week here with our can't-miss analysis from Politico's team here in Davos. So do be sure to follow Powerplay wherever you're listening so you get all of our episodes right into your podcast feed. The team bringing you our podcast this week has been our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez, with me in Davos, and Peter Snowden, our senior producer in London. I'm Anne McElvoy. See you tomorrow for another edition of Powerplay. A message from IBM. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, or generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing Watson X Governance, helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with Watson X Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance.